Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. Gail Lobovic, who is a surgeon and medical device innovator and serial entrepreneur. So thank you so much for joining us. Really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, maybe give us a little bit of background about your clinical practice, like where you went to med school, where you trained, what you practiced um, in your clinical practice and your areas of expertise in that realm. Sure. I had the great pleasure really to go to George Washington University for medical school. And it was awesome because it was very clinically focused, which was my passion and still is. And um then from there, did my surgical training at Stanford again, which was just really great to have that foundation, you know, that is so strong. And from there, I went into clinical practice and specialized in breast surgery because that's what really motivated me to make a difference in people's lives. And I wound up doing what's called oncoplastic surgery. I don't know if you're familiar with that but sure. basically really moving the ball forward to try to do more breast conserving surgery, do more breast reconstruction and really take care of the patient in a more comprehensive manner. So that's what I did for most of my clinical career, which I truly, truly love. And at the same time, I had the opportunity to get into the medical device space and create technology to move that ball forward as well. And I think the two go hand in hand. And it's been a very fun and exciting and interesting journey. That's really cool. Yeah. I remember I read a biography of William Halstead, you know, at Johns Hopkins, mm -hmm. you know, over a hundred years ago. And it's, it's amazing how far breast surgery is. I mean, the total mastectomy in, in those days was just, I mean, it's honestly like almost barbaric compared to, you know, what, what, how far we've come. So that's amazing. <laughs> I have to say that when I was a medical student, I really thought it was barbaric and that's what inspired me you know, I said, if I'm going to make any kind of a difference, this is, this looks like a place where we could use some innovation and just some changes, but that was not easy. You know, it's not easy to make changes in surgery and surgical procedures and the way we do incisions and the way we approach, especially cancer, because we don't want to take any risks and we don't want to endanger the patient at the end of the day. We want to make sure that we're not doing anything that has an increased risk. So it was a challenge. Uh, we all love a challenge. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a great challenge. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how did you get into medical devices? Was this something you, were you always kind of a tinker or was, was this something you were working on as a student or in residency, or was it more like, you know, when you got into practice and you saw like areas or clinical needs that, you know, you felt were frustrating as a, as an end, as an end user, as a, you know, a clinician. Yeah, all of, all of the above. I think, you know, as I was growing up, I was a tinkerer. I used to do a lot of ceramics and sculpture and I did gymnastics and, you know, just I was very active and, you know, through the years, I would see a problem. And that that's exactly how this sort of starts. I would see a problem and try to think of a solution, which is why I think I was attracted to surgery as a field, because, you know, you get in there and you you make a diagnosis and then you figure out, oh, okay, this patient has appendicitis. Let's let's go get it. Let's go take it out and fix the problem. So love that. But again, I was fortunate enough at Stanford. One day I got a telephone call from Dr. Tom Fogarty. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Oh, sure. Fogarty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a true legend <laughs> oh, in yeah. the medical yeah. device field. And he gave me a call and said, I'd like to see you in my office because I'm wondering if you have any ideas for products in the women's healthcare space or in breast. And I, I said, sure, absolutely. And um, was just so honored that he, he had called me and we still are working together today. So we've done multiple companies. He's been a huge supporter of our work through every company, pretty much. He's, he's helped us and guided us. And it's been a great working uh, collaboration with him and his engineering team. And it's just been great. That's awesome. Yeah. I imagine it's Stanford's a very innovative place. So I, I'm, sh- you know, walking the halls with people like Dr. Fogarty, I'm sure that that can be very inspiring. <laughs> uh, totally. And then, yeah. And then he, he runs like a vineyard too, right? He's very like, entrepreneurial. I've, I've, I've read about him that he has all kinds of things going on. <laughs> he does have a vineyard and um, some really nice wines. Definitely like-minded people, I think, tend to gravitate towards each other. Sure. Um, I think Leonardo da Vinci was kind of a great example, too. One of the key elements to medical device development, I think, is that crossover between the analytical side of our brain. You know, here's the problem. Um, What does it look like? The diagnostic piece. And the crossover to the creative side of our brain. And sure. it's not something that's very common, I think, in medicine. I think we're we're taught to be very analytical and very um, kind of rote in how we approach problems. Like, okay, you have hypertension, you use this medication, mm-hmm. do, 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 and there's kind of a formulaic approach as opposed to a creative approach. And in the med device space, you really need to marry those two things, the art and the science together. That's awesome. So I guess maybe walk us through what were some of your early devices? I guess what did what were the inspiration for developing them? And I guess what did you what did you learn from those first experiences that you carried over to the next ones? My my very first thing that I developed was actually a little notebook that we carried around in our pockets as medical students because we didn't have iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> and so people were carrying around clipboards and I developed this card system called Scut Sheets. And it had the patient's history and physical and everything at your fingertips. So that was obviously before informatics and, and sure. all the stuff that we have to help us now. But that was my very first kind of tool 
in mm. medicine. Then I went on to develop the breast binder. It's called the Expandaband breast binder, still used today. And again, it was a simple tool, but it really helped a lot. So this was a wrap that you can put on after breast surgery to help prevent bruising and hematomas. And it applies compression over the breast in a uniform manner. And it has a little bit of Velcro. So it was easy for the surgeons to put on. And it's really popular, um, both for cosmetic surgery, as well as reconstructive surgery, and just cancer surgery. And then there were a series of other inventions, um, most of them related to minimally invasive breast biopsy markers, tumor markers. You know, once you do a biopsy, you're a radiologist. So sure, you, sure. you would know that. So collagen um, with a marker in the center of it. So then the collagen would help stabilize the marker so that it sure. wouldn't float out of the biopsy cavity. And a uh, number of things in radiation therapy for both breast cancer and endometrial cancer. Oh, wow. That's yeah. yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so I guess what was your, your, um, especially when you get into more of these like implantable devices, where did you commercialize, like what, which routes have you gone? Did you commercialize them or, or license them to like bigger companies or did you start your own company or maybe a mixture of both? I guess, what's your experience as far as that goes? Great question. So we kind of had a recipe where, you know, you have to start with the foundation and creating a solid foundation. And that means understanding the regulatory pathway, the intellectual property, the real basics of protecting an idea. Once you research it and decide, hey, this is a real problem, we have some interesting solutions, and then you kind of identify something that we call a winner, <laughs> you know, a winning product, because you can create a really cool engineering marvel that will never get adopted by anyone, that won't get paid by insurance that won't have a reimbursable path that has a you know very stringent regulatory pathway and that's kind of not what our team enjoys our team enjoys really bringing products to market handing them off to a company usually we hand them off after we prove the concept and we develop the foundation or we partner with someone that has a strong marketing team but we have done the full spectrum where we've sold companies from just the idea to actually ramping up sales and building a sales force and being out in the field and doing, you know, the whole nine yards and then selling the company. So we've done the whole spectrum and each one has different, you know, each device really has different requirements and I think points that are good for an exit. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, was there... Maybe it's unique to each device, but I, I guess, is there ones where you were more inclined to, you know, essentially license it or were there more, I, I guess, what made you take it in that direction versus going, you know what, let's, let's really run with this and build, like really build out a full company. I always um, started by forming a company because that gives you kind of the protection and the strength around what you're doing and the ownership of the assets. But, you know, each, each one was pretty individual and the timing is important as well because for us we kept having other ideas right there was always something in the background and almost always we would have more than one product in the company so that if we were going to license something off we could go ahead and develop that second product but usually what happens is the acquirer would come along and say hey we love we love all of this let's 
you know, and they would buy the whole portfolio of intellectual property. And then we'd move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's, that's, that's a great way to do it. Um, you know, and one thing I'm curious, I like asking, you know, serial inventors or entrepreneurs is, is you must've had, you know, probably at this point in your career, you know, hundreds of ideas, you know, going along. How do you pick, you know, cause you know, you know, better than I do when you, when you pursue an idea, it's a huge investment of time, potentially money of your own, obviously definitely money of others, you know, re recruiting other people. It's a huge endeavor. I guess where, how do you pick which ideas to go with and which ones where you think, you know what, you know, that's kind of cool, but maybe it's probably not, not worth pursuing. I'm curious, like which ones, why have you picked the ones you you have picked? That's changed actually over the years. Um, as I, as I learned what is important and how you can make a bigger impact. So determining the size of the problem is important because, you know, sometimes you can solve a problem, but there's only 5,000 people who have that problem. And so it may not, it may not be the best place to invest a lot of time and money um, for an outcome because typically you'll have investors who actually take the risk along with you um, and back the idea so that you can grow the company. So it's a really important question and it's a lot goes into that decision. That generally takes you know, a year or two to determine, hey, do we have something that really is going to make a difference in enough people's lives that's going to make it interesting? You know, not to us necessarily as clinicians, but more to business people because they have a totally different agenda than sure. we do usually. Um, it's best when the agendas match up. So when you have a device that has a large population that can benefit from that device and it's low cost, you know, low cost, low risk, high benefit, that's a that's a secret recipe. That's really good. And that takes a lot of research and and thinking about it and strategy um strategy on the intellectual property as well as regulatory and I think that's what keeps us coming back. Sure, sure. <laughs> Is the really the strategy and problem solving all the way along the path. Sure, sure. I'm curious when you were in practice and doing this, were you were you in an academic setting or were you in a private practice setting? Stanford had kind of a blended model. Okay. So we were I was in private practice, mm -hmm. but at Stanford, so I was clinical clinical faculty. They had kind of a dual path. And, oh, and that has changed. I think through the years. Yeah. Cause I, I was curious that I, I always, you know, there's pros and cons obviously to doing this in academics versus private practice academics, especially at a place like Stanford, you have, you know, a world-class engineering department and, you know, other resources available, but in private practice, you can kind of do it your own way. You're not, I feel like beholden to the, to the institution you're a part of, I guess, what do you feel like are the pros and cons of doing this in academia versus private practice? Great question. So I've been in both. I've spent a lot of time in both. I was at the NIH as well and did cancer research there. And, you know, both have really valuable benefits. The academic environment, there's nothing like it, right? You have the support of everything at your fingertips. You've got molecular biology, pathology, you have everything right there. But it's a much slower process within the academic environment. And I think it is, it tends to be somewhat oppressive. I found that at least because I, I was too far out of the box. 
to really fit into the academic model. So Stanford's clinical path was perfect for me because I could go around the world and learn different techniques in oncoplastic surgery and bring that back and teach through creating a nonprofit organization and do, do things that were outside the confines of the academic walls. So it was the best of both worlds, really. I think I, I would have had a, a much bigger challenge if I was just in academics. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. No, I have. I had uh, Dr. John Adler on recently. He was at Stanford oh, yeah. for a long time, yeah. and and uh, he he kind of said something similar. Where he said the way he the way he got away with it was, you know, he produced a lot of research as well, which you know academic institutions like if you're publishing papers and presenting at meetings and things like that, they they like if you can parlay that from your innovation. I feel like that that's something that can you can help can help you uh, do it within academics as well. <laughs> The opposite is true as well. In private practice, you can have an, what I call an academic mindset. Mm -hmm. And we approach everything with that mindset, right? We want to establish the clinical credibility of our products by putting it in the hands of clinicians who will do studies, who will present at academic meetings. Um, next week, we're presenting our, new, our latest product at the American Allergy and Asthma Association meeting in San Antonio. So, you know, I think... I think you need to have a little bit of both in each environment, the academic and the, they, they can benefit from each other. No doubt. Sure. It's getting harder though. It is getting <laughs> harder to do that. Sure. Sure. So tell us about your, your latest company, uh, you know, uh, that you're working on Silicon Valley innovations. I mean, uh, what are, I know you, I saw on your website, you have two, uh, products that you're currently, uh, developing. Maybe you give us an overview of both of those. We do. We um, So Silicon Valley Innovations is our umbrella company. Like I mentioned earlier, we'll form a company and then we'll have several ideas that really we grow within that company. This company has two very different products. One is our flagship product, which is a nasal cleansing kit. And it's the first of its kind um, in an area that I think is ripe for innovation. So we've developed a pretty innovative little applicator or a cleansing wand. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's um, anatomically designed. And we're kind of known for developing devices that look very elegant and simple. But actually, there's a lot of sophistication in the engineering and manufacturing of this product. So it's a medical grade elastomer. And it has these little leaflets that flip over. So you get two different cleaning surfaces just like a toothbrush for your nose. And then the stick is paper. So this is our first version and there will be an evolution and a product line that we develop around this, but we do this so that we can figure out all the manufacturing and the intellectual property and all those basic foundational things I mentioned earlier. And then we created a proprietary gel, which is an antiseptic. So, you know, it's high time that somebody do that because the nose is a very dirty place it has sure. <laughs> it's exposed to the air we we filter we breathe through our nose and we bring in about 7000 liters of air a day that is filtered by the cilia and then we humidify the air as well and we don't have a lot of protection in our nose we've got mucus that creates you know the crusty stuff but we don't we're not doing anything to really clean it thoroughly in a comfortable convenient way you know you can you can take this and put it in your pocket. You can do this in the bathroom on an airplane. You can, you know, that that was the idea. Because as a surgeon, 
you know, I learned a long time ago that the nose can be a way to seed an infection in a post-op surgical infection, for example. Sure. And so orthopedic surgeons have actually started cleaning the nose preoperatively and studies show you can, by decontaminating the nose, you can actually decrease infection very significantly in the post-op period by about 60%. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty significant. (laughs) It's very significant. So um, it was a problem that I thought about for many, many years and until I had time to develop this product, um, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So, so we're off to the races with NasoClean. And cool. then our, our other product is actually an educational tool for breast surgeons to teach them symmetry and for plastic surgeons, obviously, as well. And to teach them a different way of thinking about a patient. So they actually sculpt on the tool while taking a didactic course online. And we developed that during COVID because our nonprofit organization um, actually teaches surgeons from around the world. And so this way we could ship it to them and we still were able to maintain our courses during COVID online. And it's been a fantastic tool. And uh, a study was done showing that the surgeons really felt they benefited from it and that their communication with their patients would improve. So that study is being presented at the American Society of Breast Surgeons in April. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So two very different products. Um, Most of our attention is actually in the nasal um, cleansing kit because there's a strong pull from consumers as well as ENTs and allergists. Um, Yeah. I was going to say, who's your main like target customers for this? Is it, um, is it hospitals? Is it, you know, the consumer, is it all the above, I guess? <laughs> it's all of the above. I mean, think about the toothbrush before it was invented, mm-hmm. right? So sure. we've we've now come out with uh, a product that is clearly going to help people in their general health. But instead of starting with such a broad focus, we've honed in on certain patient populations that will benefit the most. So CPAP patients, because they complain of nasal irritation and dryness, and they use it in the evening before they put the mask on, and then again in the morning. They also harbor a lot of bacteria in their nose. So using an antiseptic gel that cleanses and moisturizes is very beneficial. Um, That study was presented at the American College of Surgeons meeting. Allergy patients, as I mentioned, this allergy study was done in the Central Valley of California in agricultural workers and showed an 84% reduction in their symptoms just from cleaning and moisturizing the nose on a daily basis. Yeah. Very significant. Definitely. Yeah. Another study that is in process is with the firefighters again in central California, and they're going to be using it as part of their decontamination protocol. So occupational health and safety in healthcare workers, obviously long-term care facilities. So we're just, you know, you put one foot in front of the other. And once you get out there, you get the feedback on your product and see what the adoption rates look like. Interesting. And yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, if, is this the first time, you know, cause many medical devices, you're kind of marketing more so to like hospitals, physicians, and now you're, you're essentially doing both. Now you're, it's more of a, as a consumer product as well. I'm wondering, I'm curious, like what new challenges or, or new opportunities maybe you've, you've had, you've had because of that. Yeah. We love this product. 
because of that, you know, we, we thought, oh, we'll start in the clinical environment. But of course it was during COVID and the hospitals were all locked down. And even though we were working with some ENT surgeons, it was really challenging. And then we started getting a pull, like I was saying, on the consumer side from independent pharmacies, like, hey, we want your product. We need something like this. We don't have anything. And so we quickly um, repackaged it to look more like consumer packaging and had to have a website and had to have all the things that go along with it, you know, getting the product on Amazon, making it available to consumers. So it was challenging, which we love. We will, we like to learn. And I think that's the key is keep learning, play to your strengths, surround yourself with people who fill in the holes, <laughs> you know, really good people who have their own talents and work as a team is a vital part of being successful in the device space. Sure. Sure. So with nasal cleanse, are you, what kind of regulatory did you, did you do go through the medical device approval process or were you able to more just get it approved as a consumer product? Or I guess, what was that process like? We did. We um, feel really proud of our device because it's a class one medical device. Um, you know, you have a choice. We didn't have to do that, but we like that high bar of quality and having the quality systems in place that we typically would have. I think at the end of the day, consumers feel better understanding we have that credibility and validate the product both in vitro and in the clinical space. So again, it's that academic mindset, I think that we bring to the table and the engineering piece of this was fascinating, you know, bringing again, the clinical and the engineering together as a team, there's nothing like it. It's so much fun to create something, you know, have an idea and then create it and manufacture it and scale it and bring it to consumers. No, that's, that's really, that's, it's amazing to have an idea and then see it actually come to reality. That's, that's pretty cool. You know, one thing I'm curious, you know, you've, you've done this many times is building a team is obviously a huge component. I'm curious when you go to build a team, you know, cause it, in a way, especially if you form a company and then you get into equity and stuff like that, it, it's almost like a marriage. I mean, this is like a legally bonding, <laughs> like long-term thing, and it can be messy to disband it. So I, I guess, how do you go through like vetting who are your business partners or who are your co-founders and, and putting your team together? Yeah. You learn, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're very fortunate, you start out with a really good team and then that team sticks together. So our team has gone from one company to the next, to oh, the next, nice. to the next. And yeah, many, even our sales people that we've worked with have, some of them have been in five of our companies. Wow. Okay. And then when the company gets acquired, they'll go over to the acquiring company for a little while. And then we're on to our next one and we've grown it enough. And so they come on board. There's no question at the end of the day, this comes down to the people and you have to be able to trust the people you work with and get along with them. You're absolutely right. But trust, I think is the main thing. Having an open relationship, you know, where you can have conversations and people don't get their ego all wrapped up in in uh, decisions that have to be made. Sometimes those are design decisions that can be life threatening to a, a device. You know, you make the wrong decision. Um, sure. Believe me, we had we had many other designs, <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, this is what people they love it. You know, they mm -hmm. like it, and. Um, I think it was actually Da Vinci who said that the simplest things have the most sophistication. 
Sure, sure. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I've definitely heard that before. The simplest inventions are often the best or something like that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I guess where where are you trying to go in the next year with this? Like what's what's the next big moves and the or big milestones you're trying to trying to hit in the next year or so? Well, we've we've basically got our foundation very well established. And so now we're getting into the phase of sales and marketing. Oh wow. Um, and this is where we begin to look for strong partners. You know, people who are, for example, in the personal hygiene space, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, perhaps a company that bridges both the clinical and the consumer space. So this is where it gets really fun and exciting. We um, have all the online sales in place, both on our own website and also on Amazon. We're in well over 100 independent pharmacies. So now we're entering that growth phase and it gets really exciting and very busy (laughs) as you might imagine. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure. That's awesome. Uh, I'm curious, where where are you guys at with the, in terms of funding? Like how have you, have you funded it yourselves? Have you raised money? I guess if you have, which, which investors have you gone to? Yeah, we, you know, we've done all different types of funding through the years, right? Venture capital, and private funding for sure. This company, a lot of people who have supported our companies in the past, one or more, like some some people, investors have been in more than one of our companies and they, they again, it's trust, right? So they understand we're gonna work really hard to create the best device in class that we can and we're gonna do it the right way. And of course, there's bumps along the road, but they're willing to take that ride with you. And this company so far has been completely privately funded, including you know my own uh, funds and as well as many colleagues, physicians who understand the importance of nasal hygiene in our general health. Sure. Many physicians have invested in the company, pharmacists, corporate people. So, so far it's, it's all private. Very cool. That's yeah, that's awesome. I mean, having investors who really believe in what you're doing and and understand it, that's, I feel like that's, that's critical. <laughs> yeah. Of all the products we've developed this, this one has the broadest reach and is the easiest for people to understand, you know, sure. e- explaining an implant for breast cancer, radiation therapy targeting was challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's fun to bring, you know, your knowledge and expertise to something that's going to help so many people and we can have some fun with it. Sure. Sure. No, that's awesome. Well, where, where can people learn more about, uh, what you guys are working on, you know, any websites or platforms you guys are active on? I definitely want to, we'll put it in the description, but just so people can hear it as well. Yeah. Our website, nasocleanse.com is the easiest place to, to get information. And we are on Instagram. We're new to social media. Nice. Which is a whole nother thing. And LinkedIn. Awesome. So yeah, definitely follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram and visit our website at nasocleanse.com. Very cool. Very cool. My last question I ask everybody is uh, when you're not working on medical devices or doing surgery, what, what, what are your passions? Do you you have any outside and if if, to find that balance, if it's even possible? (laughs) I'm not very good at that. (laughs) I admit that. I, I love the outdoors. So I love to hike and, and cycle. I love to swim. 
And I spend some time down in New Zealand, which I love because it has a lot of fresh air and hiking trails. And Mm -hmm. quite honestly, I love to work. And when you love your work and you have a passion for what you're doing, it just doesn't feel like work. It's just life. Sure, sure. No, and like you said, it's a creative outlet. You know, like we're, you know, medicine's so prescribed and regimented and I mean, for good reason, obviously, but uh, it's fun to think outside the box and develop new things. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> totally. I, I feel very blessed. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Lobovic, thank you so much for joining us and taking time out of your very busy schedule. I uh, really appreciate it and really learned a lot. And I'm sure that listeners will learn quite a bit from this episode as well. Thank you for having me, Max. It's been really fun. And uh-huh. I'm, I'm excited to watch your career as you go along. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour podcast presented by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.